Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So we talk a lot about real estate investing on this show, and I'd like to break that down a little bit today because you hear about people talking about real estate investing, and a lot of times you hear about a lot of different things, whether it's fix and flips or wholesaling. You hear about investing in homes or apartment buildings. Well, the reality is this is a very, very broad topic. But I'd like to break it down into two main categories for you. And one of those categories is real estate as a business. Now, the idea with real estate as a business is that you're not trying to create ongoing cash flow. What you're trying to do is create capital gains. An example of this would be when you buy a rundown house, you rehab it, and then you sell it. And then you sell it for more than you actually put into the house and you create some sort of capital gains. Now, that's not a bad deal. The only problem is that it's not really investing for cash flow. When I think of real estate investing, it involves actually putting money into real estate and then allowing a residual income to come of it. Now, those two actually can be married in a certain way, and you'll see today as we interview Andrew Holmes, who does this beautifully. In order to invest in real estate, the reality is you have to have capital. You have to have money. And that's why I think this is particularly good for those of you who are already high-paid professionals. But if you don't have money, flipping, wholesaling, these kinds of activities can actually generate quite a bit of capital gains and allow you to get into the investing business. Anyway, if this sounds confusing, keep listening and it'll all become clear as we interview Andrew Holmes on the Wealth Formula Podcast. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey again. Today, my guest is Andrew Holmes. Now, he's been in the real estate business since the age of 19. And during that time, he's done over 700 fix and flips and currently owns over 165 properties. Based on my internet research, he's also the host of the popular Chicago radio show, Real Estate Live. So I met Andrew on a couple of occasions in the last few years and have actually been sort of following his progress over the years over the internet. And I'm just really, really impressed. 
He is passionate. He is a true entrepreneur and a man after my own heart in that regard. He's particularly passionate about real estate. He not only talks the talk, but he really does walk the walk, which is really important in this business if you're going to try to learn from somebody. So, Andrew, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate you having me on the show. Great, great. Now, tell me and tell my audience a little bit about your background and how you ultimately got interested in real estate. I was lucky to be born here in Chicago, grew up in India. And then at the age of 17, I came back to the United States. So I had kind of a mix of both cultures, you know, Indian background with American culture. But I don't know, since I was a little kid, I was always fascinated by business people because both my parents happened to be physicians. My dad is an orthopedic surgeon. My mom is a OBGYN gynecologist. And I saw them, what some would consider kind of rich, but I always had friends who had a lot I've said this many, many times, their parents weren't the most sophisticated people, they weren't quite as well educated as my parents, but yet, as a kid, all you know is parents' wealth in terms of how many cars they have. When nobody had cars in India, my parents had three. And we had a pretty decent house, but these business people had a lot, lot more. And from a very young age, I remember asking my mom, mom, why do the other people have more? She's like, we're very blessed. I'm like, I understand that, mom, but why do they have more? That question has always bugged me. And she's like, well, they're business people and we're professionals. We're not like them. And the way she said it, not that I don't think she meant it, but, you know, there was this kind of a negative connotation that, oh, you know, professional is somehow is superior. But yet the business people owned the hospitals where my parents operated. I just didn't want to be the physician. I wanted to be the guy who owned the hospital. I mean, that's really where kind of the whole thing began. And I've been search of being a business person rather than a professional, quote unquote. But that's why I have tremendous respect for people like you, who being a physician, being a doctor, a lot of people envy that position, yet you're a doctor turned entrepreneur. So it's amazing. you know. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that about your parents, okay? Because here's a fundamental problem that I think a lot of physicians and healthcare professionals in general have. We all measure wealth, whether or not we are quote unquote rich in our own currency, right? And so if you come from a culture or you come from a background, I'm also Indian American, that really puts a premium on labels of being a physician or having some sort of advanced degree, that becomes the currency, right? And that's not limited to just South Asian culture or anything like that. I mean, if you look even within physician communities, nobody ever wants to talk about money as if money's a dirty thing. They don't want to talk about reimbursement. They don't want to talk about the fact that there's people making more money than them and they wish they were making more. They don't. Money is a four-letter word for physicians. And so that is a hurdle that physicians have to get over, as you can see with your parents probably what's going on in medicine. But I do appreciate that perspective. You've been in the real estate arena for a while. I'm sure you recognize at this point that there is a difference between the business of real estate, which I would call more the flipping and wholesaling, versus real estate as an investment tool. Tell me how you see that. I would agree 100%. I got in real estate because anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur during college, I was not the guy who would go out and party. I would go check out books from the library. I mean, that's just for some reason had this passion from pretty early on in life. Now, I didn't have anything to show for it, but somewhere along the way, a lot of the people who were wealthy had something to do with real estate. And I didn't know the difference between being a real estate agent 
and being a real estate investor. So I took some of the Pell Grant or whatever that, you know, money that they give you. And I bought a real estate licensing course because I thought it all meant the same thing. Sad to say, but I think it was fortunate in a way that basically found myself into in a few years of being a real estate agent was I was no different than a physician, an engineer, a plumber that's highly paid. I did very, very well at it, yet I was running on a treadmill. The harder I ran, the more I made, yet the day I stopped running, all the income stopped. So to me, it was earned income is doing a flip or doing a wholesaling. A lot of times, people mischaracterize flipping or wholesaling as investing. I don't truly think that that's investing. I think it's another way to make a living which nothing wrong with it. We do an awful lot of that, but that's not investing. Investing is something that you do and that it pays you dividends for a long, long, long time. Yeah, I love that perspective because that's exactly the way I think about it too. And I think a lot of people who get into real estate, listen, the idea of getting into real estate these days is almost like you know, becoming a Hollywood actor in the 80s, right? It's, sure. it's everybody wants to be a real estate investor, but what the heck does that even mean? In my view, if you want to be a real estate investor, a real estate investor is going to get money on a monthly basis without much work. You know, maybe you have a property manager in place, et cetera. But in order to get there, you have to have the fuel. You have to have some money or capital in order to invest in those kinds of deals. Now, flipping or wholesaling, on the other hand, is a business. And as you recognize, it is something that takes up a lot of your time. And I know you were spending a lot of your time on this. You get you know good returns, but really the goal there is to generate capital so that you can put it to work and create investments. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, 100%. It's, it's no different. I mean, there's no difference between that and having a day job. To me, the only good part is that you get to be around real estate. You get to start learning what is a good deal. Hopefully, you understand returns, you, the time value of money. All those important things, yes, they come because of that, but it's nothing more than a day job. happens to be in real estate, but it is a day job. And people who mix those two terms, I think, after a number of years, find themselves, they have really nothing to show for it except just another flip. So. Right. In the case of a lot of my audience, we have a number of physicians or dentists or chiropractors or even lawyers, software engineers, et cetera. And these are people who already have that fuel in place. We call it sort of the motor. And for them, it may not be very valuable to go and, and try to go flip things because they're already creating money. The question is flipping or wholesaling or something like that create more money for them than they currently with their high paid job. In a lot of cases, that's a no. And not I agree because 100%. And that's not no, because, you know, you can't make a lot of money with flipping, which of course you have and you've shown. And that's, you know, it's a business and not everybody is cut out for it. And so if you've already got something for that's actually creating that vehicle, you've skipped a step. You've already got the money. Now let's put it to work for you. Now, yes, going back to that in terms of your current situation, Andrew. How much of your real estate activity at this point is as a real estate business and how much as an investor? Basically, how much of this is passive and how much of it is, is still active business real estate activity? So about the transactions that we do, about 30%, I'm going to say, are flips, wholesales. Obviously, we have kind of built a huge audience for wholesales and we're very fortunate. So quite honestly, if you were to take time value of money, we can do a wholesale and make more 
for the time invested than even a flip because of how long it takes to get it bought, rehabbed, put back on the market, go through financing and flip it again. We do a lot of that, but that's honestly just to put food on the table and that's it. Because the cash flow that comes in, which is 70%, almost 75% of our business, we absolutely do not touch. We don't live on it. We don't touch it. We just accumulate it. And as you know, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit further, is we take that to either pay off properties or buy more properties because of the cash flow that we build up every month. You mentioned wholesaling, and of course I know what that means. Can you explain a little bit to our audience what what wholesaling is? So wholesaling is simply basically you're getting a property under contract or you're buying it at auction or whatever it may be at a very attractive price, and you're just immediately turning around and offering it to another buyer. And a lot of times, wholesaling in its true sense when it comes to real estate is Tying up a property, let's say I'm just going to use example for $60,000 and you basically sell your contract to a third party for $70,000 or $80,000 because, and they will buy it because it's still a great price, which they can't find on their own. Right. So it's sort of arbitrage. It's arbitrage. Absolutely. So you're you're helping people find properties and uh, making the whole flipping process almost turnkey to the extent that you've already identified the deal. And that's usually the hardest part with these kind of situations. Now, out of the properties that you actually would consider investment properties, are those managed by a property manager? We have an in-house property management team. Right. Got it. So when you look at a house for investment purpose, what is the process? Because you don't, I mean, obviously you're not buying retail houses and looking to rent them out. So you've got a certain amount of money that you're putting up up front for rehab, et cetera. And then when you rent it out as an investment, what's a typical or what kind of cash on cash return are you looking for? So what we would qualify as a good deal is in terms of actual numbers, let's say, the trans- properties bought, purchase price is 75000 80000 We tend to only buy single-family properties, like half of a duplex, townhouses, or three to four flats. That's where we stop. And uh, in single families, we prefer something 1,400 square feet or less. Ideal candidate for us is a 1,200-square-foot house, ranch, no basement, with uh, three bedrooms, one-and-a-half bath. That's ideal for us. I don't want a lot of caps in the house. I don't want a lot of fixtures in the house. There's a curve which I feel, you know, the point of diminishing returns is reached when the house is a three-bedroom, single-family house. Per door, we're looking for $400 net cash flow. So when we're buying the property, we're buying it with minimum of 25 to 30% equity. Then we're putting in, let's say, 20000 25000 to rehab it. So that needs to increase the value of the house. So let's say we bought it for seventy-five, we put in twenty to fix it. There's ten thousand other miscellaneous costs. So our all-in costs, the way we calculate it, would be hundred, hundred, two thousand. The property needs to appraise out on a refinance appraisal for one thirty, one forty, for us to say that that's a great deal. Because at that point, we're doing a rate and term refi on the property. And then it still cash flows about $400 to $500 net cash flow. Most of the time, we don't have any of our own cash in the property. And what our goal always is on a single family property where we have about $1,400 to $1,500 in rent that are all in cost, including purchase, rehab, and all other costs, should not be more than $100,000. Two years ago, the number was 
90,000. Today, it's 100,000. But we do not like, we want equity. I mean, that's really what we're buying, equity and cash flow. Mm -hmm. And our standards are very, 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 very strict. So So just as a review, what would that come out for an actual percent of cash as an investment. So if you got 400 as your your net. In net cash flow, so 80% or 90% of our properties, we don't even have any cash stuck in the property. We have bought it, rehabbed it, refinanced it. Got it. And we don't have any cash flow. But in the Chicago market, I'm specifically talking about in the suburbs is where we buy. If you can't get 25, 30% equity after you're done with the rehab, and if let's say you have $10,000 invested in the property, if you cannot generate a minimum of 25 to 30% cash on cash return after management expenses, there's something horribly wrong you're doing because right. we can find a ton of those still. Right. So what you're talking about, which is great, is a model where your cash on cash return is infinite. And you do see that sometimes in multifamily as well. Right now, how many houses do you own? About 160. We right now currently have 149 tenants that are settled into the properties. There's a bunch of properties that are under rehab. And as we have grown, we clean up inventory. So we try to keep the best of the best and anything else that we feel is not quite to our standards, we clean house. What we've found is less is more rather than just building numbers. When I started, it was purely on about numbers, but a lot of the smaller association type properties, if we can move them out, It was great to build, but now we're kind of pruning the inventory and getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner deals. Right. Do you also have investors involved with these at all, or are they... We raise a lot of capital. Sure. So private money is a lot of it. We don't necessarily formally go out and ask for money. Now we have a huge center of influence. So it was obviously in the beginning, it was tough for the first year and a half to two, because everybody wants to get on a moving train rather than a train that's standing at the station. And once the train gets moving, everybody and their brother wants to jump on. Basically, we're borrowing the money at somewhere around 10% is what we pay on the money, short-term money on the front end. And typically, we pay that back anywhere from four months to six months, whatever time it takes to set up, do the rehab, refinance it, and then we put a long-term debt on it. For us, long-term debt is five-year balloon, 25-year amortization with a portfolio lender. How is that for investors, that 10%, is that annualized 10% or is that 10%? Annualized 10%. Got it, got it. But if it's only over four months, you're not going to get 10%. Yeah, typically, I mean, the investors we have, they've been investing with us for a long time, and it'll go from one transaction to the next to the next to the next. I don't recall any investor that has really, I think one investor decided to do something else, but everybody else has, in fact, grown their capital investment over time because we always have transactions. As long as we're in this stage of buying, we will keep paying that. Plus, we have a lot of flips in process at a time. So we can always use the capital. Sure. And are you still open to people out there who might be interested in investing? Sure. I mean, we're always open to new ideas, new thoughts, people that want to invest. We're always open. I'll never say the day you are not open about anything in real estate doesn't matter. It's just in general, I think you stop growing. I never got into this for relationships, but probably one of the things that I'm most proud of is how many people unknowingly we've been able to contribute to in some meaningful way, and not only financially, but even in personal relationships and otherwise. So we're always open to funding. We're always open to money. We're always open to thoughts and ideas. That's I think I'm proud of the fact that I've kept an open mind on that, and that has helped me tremendously. Tell me about this concept of 257. 
So the 257 kind of came out of 2011 when we started buying rentals. That's the first time I ever bought rentals in my life was in 2011. I think end of 2010 and 11. At the time, we were still in a very precarious market. And what we were scared of was that the balloons that we had, the five-year balloons, would come due. And suddenly, what if the interest rate spiked? That's kind of where the idea came from. So the thought was, what if we have five properties, we take the cash flow, and we pay down the first two or three to a significant degree? Even if the interest rate spike, the next two doesn't matter if the interest rates are 10%, 12%, 14%. We have more than enough cash flow to never have to give the property back to the bank, never have to get into financial trouble. So that's kind of where the idea grew out of that can we do in two years, five properties, and try to get them paid off in seven. It was basically a way to hedge our bets, really. That's where the whole concept started. And as I started mentioning to a lot of people, a lot of people were like, oh my God, you know, would love to have paid off properties. And that has kind of ballooned into a whole idea by itself. So Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit because from my perspective, leverage is a good thing. Right. And in particular for me, leverage in real estate serves a few purposes. One is, for example, let's take I have an apartment building in Bronzeville that I get about 15% cash on cash, which is pretty good. I mean, I never sure. been there since I bought the building, right? So that's not bad. One of the thing that's really interesting, and so I was looking at P&L for the end mm-hmm. of the year, and, and it showed me having taxable income of a negative amount of money. And sure. the value of that, of course, is that even though I made thousands of dollars on that building, sure. the depreciation and the uh, interest on the mortgage payments right. more than offset the actual income, therefore making that income completely tax-free. So that's certainly, to me, one of the big values of investing in real estate, in particular with leverage. The other thing is, of course, I think of leverage as a hedge against inflation, which I think you know, if you're talking about rates of 9 or 10%, if it was really that high, you'd probably have a CPI would be off the charts. You know, it'd be sure. uh, 20% inflation. So sure. you'd presumably be increasing the rents quite a bit in, right. as of, to follow that. So to me, leverage is almost borrowing free money. And if you have, for example, a 30-year mortgage, and I know you don't get that in commercial typically, but or even 10 years, it's basically if there's inflation and there's a tremendous increase in the price of your asset, the amount that's owed becomes almost nominal, right? Absolutely. So, so that's my perspective. I'm curious, and I understand, but I'd like to hear your take on some of what I'm talking about. You know, I think you're t- what you're talking about is 100% correct. The only difference is this. You know how there are certain people who are children of the Depression, I consider myself a child of the 2007-2008 depression uh, that I had (laughs) never, uh, I mean, I had early on in my life at the age of 24, so I owned a business very, very successful and because of lawsuit, blah, blah, somebody drove into the gas station. Uh, I started with nothing, made a lot of money, lost it. That has always stuck with me. So uh, before I get into kind of what you were talking about, what you're talking about is a little bit more sophisticated way of investing. My belief is this that for an average person, people who make 150000 or more, I put them in a different category, personally. But for an average American, anybody can own five houses, and anybody can take those and pay them off. Does that make them rich? No. But in our market, it gives you about $900 net cash flow, times five is about 4500 bucks. That's not 
rich by any means, but yet at least it will put food on the table. Sure. My belief is this, that first you have to be out of dead air to a certain extent, and then you can start doing whatever you want with the excess. And so my belief has been is that we use a number called your LPN, which is lifestyle property number. My thought is once you take your current expenses, get them down to a figure, let's say it's for some people it'll be five, for some people it'll be 10,000 a month, for some it'll be 15. Once you can have enough properties that are paid off to meet a part of that or some of that or all of that, you're set for the rest of your life. And on top of that, if you would like to grow, that's purely based on the ambition that you have. And as you start growing, you start realizing, oh my God, the limit is based upon by your thoughts and dreams. It's not based upon by the market. And uh, real estate gives you such a wonderful way to scale up. So my belief has always been is that put some aside, do some very, very, very safely, securely, and then start building like crazy. And that's what we have done is that a handful of properties we have taken and completely paid off. So for me, I have a business partner who joined me at a little bit later point, was Rahul. And for both of us, our needs are met. We don't at least have to worry about it. Anytime something happens in business up and down where I want to quit, I always look at it and go, you know, at least I have food on the table. I can drive a decent, pretty nice cars, live in a decent house. I'm good. Let's go. And that's really my approach is safety first and growth second. So you're already at the safety point though, right? Yes, I am. Right. Well, you're past the safety. I saw your Maserati, man. Come on. (laughs) Just stop crashing those things. (laughs) So No, I mean, so that's what we've done is, and now to take your point and move it forward, what has happened is you're in an arena when you're doing multifamily units, whenever you show a loss from a accounting perspective, you go to a banker, it's added back in when they give you a loan, right? The depreciation, because they understand the tax, you know, what the IRS rules allow you to do. When in our arena, when we're buying residential houses with commercial loans, they don't do that. So I still have to pay some taxes at the end of the year, every year, even though I have enough properties where I could write everything off if I wanted to. I still have to pay. It's just the technicality between the loans. But the reason I believe that 257 is important is that for most people who are not very sophisticated investors, first, I think if they secure some properties, put them aside, and then once they learn all the sophisticated things and they have that kind of money to play with, they can choose not to use the cash flow. I'm first trying to put discipline in people. Once they have the discipline, now the world is the playground. That's just my approach. Yeah, no, it's very reasonable. Now let's let's talk about something else that we have a slightly different approach on as well. You've been focusing on single family homes. Your business is built around this idea of, say, for example, I think I remember hearing that you have a goal of maybe about two hundred or so. Is that right? Now, sure. why not just at this point, you know, sophisticated enough, start going up to the uh, multifamily buildings? and get to, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 units at a time at that point. Now, certainly you again could be using your 257 rules there too, but the multiplication of that equity would be significantly more. And of course, in my view, I've always said this and I truly believe this, bigger is easier. I found every time that I thought smaller was easier, I was wrong because bigger is easier to fudge 
bigger is easier to scale for me. And it's also generally cheaper in some because you've got the entire economy of scale aspect of it. And this goes back to your idea with the single family houses. How do you know that equity won't plummet? Well, valuation in multifamily is very different, right? We're not Correct. we're not looking at what somebody thinks my house is worth. The apartment building is worth a multiple of the net operating income. And so it's a highly predictable and somewhat more conservative approach. And I'm curious why you've not been in this arena. You know, uh, I mean, it's a great question. And a lot of times this has come up over and over. Again, I think it's going back to a comfort factor because I came from the arena of single family properties. What my perspective always was that let's get a few simple things built, and then let's play with the bigger numbers. And quite honestly, from my pocket, since the day I started real estate till today, I've invested $20,000. Sure. And that's the only investment I ever have put in, hard money out of pocket. And I've parlayed one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And now we have enough scale where we don't have to worry about, we were talking about having the basic needs met. Now the world is an oyster in terms of what I can do, I can stand in front of people and go, guys, this is what we're going to do. And a lot of times people will just run along with it. So I used as a stepping stool, I've always done that in my life, is that if I'm scared to basically take a big leap, I'll just start doing small things. And I'll do so many small things that I can stack them together and they add up to a huge pile. That's where my comfort factor was. I could control all the things that could go wrong with it. I really didn't have a support system, quite honestly. My parents still live in India. I didn't want to go to them and say I was broke. Uh, I had a set of, my own set of reasons, but I felt that residential was the safe way to go. It was something that anybody could start with. And then once you get to a certain scale, then you could build. Now, if I had come from a uh, income where I was a a doctor or I had worked as an engineer or something else where I had a steady paycheck. Maybe I might have looked at things differently, but I just kind of played it as safe as possible. I mean, that's really all the reason. I agree with you 100% that on the bigger thing to grow really, because this is the issue that I had a conversation with Rahul many, many times, is that, okay, we figured out how to get to the 10, 20 million point, uh, 15 million. Now from here, what do we do? You buy another 100 houses, how long is it going to take to set those up? How long is it going to take? And then what? My goal, as I think uh, you might have heard or maybe we discussed at some point, my goal has always been I want to one day have a business big enough so I can buy something like you know a G300 or something like that. I'd like to have a Gulfstream. And I cannot get there. How much does uh, that cost? How much is a Gulfstream? It costs about, about 20, 25 million. About 25 million. All right. Yeah. And the only way I can get there is that I add scale to my business. I can rent one, but I certainly cannot <laughs> buy one uh, right now. So <laughs> I, I heard that I heard that owning a plane is sort of like the guy who buys a boat. You know, the it, be- no, it's true. It's it's not, and and I say that in a facetiously, to be honest, that it's not that at the end of the day you have to own one. I think God's blessed people like you and me. We have a lot of opportunity. We have a wonderful set of parents. It's just that if we can dream it, if it's in our dreams, we should at least have the ability to be able to achieve it. Not that you will necessarily go out and buy a plane. 
you can certainly charter one. It's much uh, better, maybe fractional ownership. But no, I, just, I know, I know what example, you, mean. you know, because I think it's possible. Yeah, really absolutely. Possible. You know, I'll I'll tell you what my uh, told my wife this many times. Uh, if uh, anybody's been listening to the show, they know I'm a huge NFL fan. I'm a big football fan, and my dream is to own be the owner of a professional football franchise. That is my dream. And so you got to have something. So maybe you don't, maybe you fall short, but at least you didn't get past your uh, goal and then say, oh, well, I guess I'm done. Now I can die, right? So what is wealth to you, Andrew? I mean, is it buying a, a jet stream? What is wealth? And are you wealthy now? I would say my personal needs are met beyond what I spend. Well, beyond that are met. I have cash flows, but I don't consider myself wealthy. I mean, at one time, if I'd looked at it, I would have gone, yes, that would be wealth. I don't certainly, at one time to me, business, I mean, excuse me, a big house meant you were rich. If you had a fancy car, it meant you were rich. But wealth truly is defined by what do you want net cash flow wise every single month? And can that be made without you having to run on a treadmill? You having to manage a business, you always have to manage things that's different. But if you have X amount of dollars coming in, so to me, I could say that, okay, I've achieved something when I have $100,000 net coming in a month. Personally, that does not include to Rahul. And that's without me putting in the time. Remember, that's uh, uh, that's, uh, that's about enough. a 40% tax rate, the way you're going. <laughs> right. No, no, I'm just saying, see, the thing is not that, again, not necessarily no, no, I, that I'm you're getting paid. Where you. I'm coming from is that I think wealth will be different to somebody. Somebody who only spends, spends 4000 a month, if they make six or seven, they're like, oh, my God, I have, I'm wealthy. So I think it's a subjective issue. But if I was to put a number on it, that's the number I would put on yeah, it. Yeah, no, I think that's reasonable. And, and the point I was trying to get at was actually, I've been lucky enough where with my investments and businesses, I've made a lot of money. And the one thing that I realized, though, is that wealth, to me, is not a function of actual money. It's more of a function of time. So, And that's why I say, despite the fact that you know I, I make a lot more than typical doctors do, that I'm not wealthy yet because I can't like go away for a year and have everything just keep cruising along. Right. You know, what happens when you make a lot of money is you create a lot of expenses, whether that's sure. your house or your Maserati or, you know, whatever sure. the case is. And so I call that concept for high paid professionals. I don't call it the rat race. I call it the golden handcuffs because it's a little Absolutely. different, right? Absolutely. Because you create a certain lifestyle for yourself and it's okay. Everybody deserves it. I am the last person around to try to tell people who will tell people to save and not live because you could die right. tomorrow right. and deferred gratification is only good as long as you're still alive, right? So Absolutely. I think the trouble is that a lot of us, you know, high paid professionals, we kind of follow the Joneses, you know? And, you know, you're making a couple hundred thousand bucks, you know, three, four hundred thousand, whatever. You'd think that would be way more than enough. The next thing you know, you move into a million, couple million dollar house in that neighborhood that everybody's supposed to be at. And the next thing you know, you've got to have the cars and so on and so forth. It just spirals. Sure. But it's the same problem that sometimes people who are making fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year are dealing with. It's the same problem. It's on a higher level. And that's why I call it the golden handcuffs and trying to get away from that is the key, right? So, you know, doc, I have a friend of mine. He said something a while back. I was pretty young at the time. I think I was 20, 25. The guy's probably worth about a couple hundred million bucks. And what he said is the day that 
the stack of checks, which are in your investments that you invest in every year is larger than the amount of checks that you use for your personal use, that day your equation starts getting in the right direction. And today, at least for me, that is the case, that most of the money that we make goes back into reinvest into into growth, into bigger things, which spits out a lot of cash. And people have said this many, many times, the rich get richer. And it's always been true. The rich do right. Rich. I mean, that's just how it is. Well, and, and yeah. you know, listen. There's a whole concept in in economics called a marginal propensity to spend, and the people who make more money spend less. They Correct. invest more. They spend Absolutely. less. So it it stimulates the economy less. So it's a very, it's such a common thing that it's actually been factored in by economists. So now, where do you want to be in five years? That's a very interesting question. You know, I don't know. I mean, quite honestly. I am in that phase as we speak. We're cleaning up some of our businesses, a couple things. Sometimes, you know, when you aspire to have something just because you can doesn't mean you should, mm-hmm. right? I opened a couple of other businesses that are not related to real estate. We realized that we should stick to the things that we know. We, as you know, we do big seminars and all that kind of stuff. That's really my true passion in life. I would do it for free. It makes us a lot of money, but I would rather do it for free because I enjoy doing it. I love being able to share what we're able to do. So that for sure, I see that in the next five years. But I'm quite honestly looking. I mean, this you have been on on my agenda to come and talk to, sit down and have a conversation with about what next. Do we go to chicagofunding.org, the type of company we open to raise capital and lend that out? Or do we go in the direction of... Uh, raising capital, and going into multifamily. But whatever it is, we need to figure out how to add one extra zero in front of what we have today. We should um, definitely have that conversation. But I'll tell you this much, which I think is a, something to consider. I actually think that, at least from the multifamily standpoint, it mm-hmm. is a tricky time. I think if you go to a lot of secondary markets, I'm right now looking into looking in Oklahoma and, you know, some of these markets that nobody thinks about, right? True. But the problem is there's a lot of foreign money and right. getting into multi in. That's right. And when you get into multifamily, especially with investors, you want to do a deal that's worth your time, you know. Sure. And and that's something else that, you know, as you progress, I think you're realizing now, this is where I get into the idea of doing things larger because it's going to take the same amount of effort for you to make 500 bucks per deal or $5,000 per deal or even $50,000 a deal. And so I think there's a great opportunity now in secondary markets as there there has been for a long time. But I think that in Chicago, my sense is that things are really tightening up and the guys that are we're doing the $20 million deal now. They're getting priced out with pretty low cap rates, and they're going down to the 20, and the 20s are going down to the 10. But I think that there's a great opportunity coming because I don't think that's sustainable. And I Absolutely. think when no, I agree. Happens, and, and really what the question you asked was, I mean, what I need to do in my business, and I know that, is add scale. Right. Today's business that we have, it runs, properties get bought, and pretty much we're within the numbers. Uh, give or take a little bit, but we can do that without necessarily me being there. Uh, So that every month is growing. I mean, I have a, I'm very, very blessed to have a phenomenal business partner. Probably he has more brains than I do, 
yet I get the credit a lot of the times, but, and I'm blessed in that way. So what we're really looking for as a business is how do we add scale? Either we build an entity that has some value, which we can sell as a whole business. So that's something that we're seeking. I mean, we're seeking and we want to engage that conversation with uh, different types of people because I don't know if there's a specific answer, but I feel the wind is on our back. And now the question is, okay, what do you do with that time? Are you going to make a few, a couple hundred thousand or a million or tons more? I mean, that's really the question is, how big can you think? Right. I mean, if you think about it, it's a, you know, I mean, it, it's a true business and it's got management, it's got cash flow. And, you know, from a business standpoint, it should, you know, selling that thing on block should be worth millions of dollars right now. So absolutely, it's a great opportunity. And I, I think that would be a great way to go because then it opens you up to the next uh, five years, do whatever the hell you want. Right. So right. tell me more about the coaching program, because one thing I want to say, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you, Andrew, is that. I think there's a lot of BS artists out there who are doing coaching programs, who are doing the real estate, get rich quick schemes and so on and so forth. And they don't have really even have the experience. And I know you do. So I'm really interested in you telling us about your program and you know how people can find out more about it. I quite honestly, I have never been to a real estate class as such. This weekend, I was at a thing on marketing a little bit about real estate, how to mark, do mailers, this, that, that sort of thing. It's the first actual real estate class that I've ever attended in my life. I went as a real estate agent for training, but I never went to a class. What I've done, at least, is based on what other people did. I watched it from 19 years old till I was about 32, 33. And all the things that they did, I don't do. And my approach on real estate is, if you take a book from Benjamin Graham, was the godfather of value investing. That's really what I do is what it's the Buffett school of thought. And that's what I apply to what I do today in real estate, which is I invest very, very, very conservatively, yet I use leverage with huge margins. And uh, the challenge is that in America, the thing that most people will spend thousands and thousands, thousands of dollars on a scary amount of money is how do I get rich? And America is the haven of how do I get rich? There's probably more books written on self-help and getting rich than any other bloody thing in the world in America. And we live in that society where everybody wants to be rich. The problem is that there is no shortage of anybody to tell you how you can get there quickly. Because if you try to tell people it's going to take five years, it's going to take eight years, and you have to build up to it, they will tune you out. And they will pay somebody else 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, hundred thousand dollars on their credit card because that person promises them that, oh, I can tell you how to get there in six months or a year or two years. I don't know of any serious business person that I have ever met that ever told me, okay, quit whatever you're doing today and start doing this one thing and it's going to make you rich overnight. Yet, unfortunately, that's the message that most people want to hear that most people don't want to believe that life is going to take a toll somehow, somewhere. You're going to have to pay a price. Now, you can get there a little bit quicker, but there is no overnight success. And yet we're in a society which is a popcorn type of society. You push a button and things happen for you. And that's the reason why most people who buy a real estate seminar, I'm going to say 99.999% 
they will never, 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 never make it, period. And it's not because they don't have the ability to, it's because the messaging, the way it's packaged, is done very, very, very incorrectly. From a technical standpoint, is the program, is it more about sort of the business of real estate in terms of flipping and and wholesaling or is it investing or a little bit of both? No, I I think what it is is the basic understanding of what valuation of real estate is supposed to be and what it costs to rehab and all those types of things. They're never really drilled into most of the students. And so the only thing that is shown is, well, I bought the property for twenty. Sold it for 40. Oh my God, I made 20,000 bucks. Now think about if you can repeat that process a hundred times, voila, you're rich. That's how it's shown. And that's what people get sold into. And I really don't think that that's how it works. I mean, I think it's based on a lot of study. It's based on a lot of understanding of this. When you've been around investing for a long time, I believe your father is a very successful investor from what little I know about your background. And you've paid your price somewhere. You had to. Right. And that's the part of it is that when your approach is based on how do I get there quickly and how do I get or instantaneously would be the word, then you take every shortcut possible. And I just don't think you can make money that way. Yeah. I do think there's one way to do a shortcut a little bit, which is doing coaching programs and hiring consultants that are actually good. Because what you're getting in my view when you do something like that. And I've done that a fair number of times for a variety of things for you know medical businesses, et cetera. Sure. And what happens is that, okay, well, I'll say something costs ten, twenty thousand dollars, you probably ended up saving about two hundred thousand dollars in terms Definitely. of you know things that you would have made mistakes on. So I see it as an investment. Now I agree one hundred percent. I mean, like the coaching program we do, the devil is in the details. To me, if you want to understand real estate, you have to understand the numbers. If you're just about, oh, I bought a house and turned it into a pretty house, and that has nothing to do with the business of real estate. The business of real estate is the numbers. And if the numbers don't work, I don't care what how beautiful a house you make, it's never going to come in. Your numbers don't come in, and trying to make a house beautiful, you're going to lose money. And people who don't understand that it's all by the numbers in the long run are going to lose. And the reason we've had as high of a success rate as we have had is because we just abuse people into doing things our way. If you don't (laughs) do it our way, get the hell out. Because it's, I mean, one thing is that in any other part of life, I can make a flippant statement and it's not going to affect you. You're going to listen for one year and say, oh, Andrew's having a bad day today and leave. The problem with investing is if I make a flippant statement and you take it to heart and you do it, it will devastate your financial future. And I cannot have that on my conscience, period, because I've been in a position where I was broke and it cannot be because of my actions or something that I said that it will affect real estate will affect positively or negatively the next 5, 10, 15 years of your life, depending on the decisions you make. And hence, those decisions have to be very well thought out, which most people don't have those thought out. And that's why they get in trouble with it. I think that having a coach or a mentor with um, who feels personally responsible is a very valuable thing. So let me ask you this. How can we get more information on that course? And also, if listeners want to contact you, whether it's to potentially be another investor or you know, just to find out more about what you're doing, you're obviously based in the Chicago area. Where can they get a hold of you or how can they get a hold of you? 
So to get hold of us, they could go to Chicago, RIA, R-E-I-A dot org. We own Chicago RIA, which is Chicago Real Estate Investors Association. It's the largest group of investors of its kind. We own another couple of businesses called Chicago Flipping and so on and so forth. But the easiest way is they can either call us or the email is info at Chicago RIA, R-E-I-A dot org. Again, that's info at Chicago RIA, R-E-I-A dot org. Or the number is 847-303-5011. That's Andrew Holmes, everybody. Thanks again, Andrew, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Doc. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. 